When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. I thought it would be nice to read this small remark from Henry James in 1865. Uh, It's worth saying beforehand, though, that uh, as fans of Whitman probably already know, Leaves of Grass received uh, a torrent of negative reviews and criticism and mockery and derision, anything you can think of during its nearly uh, 40-year life. Uh, while Whitman was alive, publishing successive editions and compilations of the book. Um, Whitman seems uh, to sort of have enjoyed some of these negative reviews, and I believe it is later on in Zweig's book that I will quote, uh, I think, Whitman's brother saying that he would walk around with the uh, negative reviews copied out in his pocket, or at the very least he would... uh, he would sort of see it as a badge of honor to even print a few of them on the back of the next issue of Leaves of Grass. And the one from Henry James comes from 1865, and it says, Art requires, above all things, a suppression of oneself, a subordination of oneself to an idea. This, meaning Leaves of Grass, will never do. We find art, measure, grace, and sense sneered at on every page. Um, I think by this time, Whitman's long poem had been given the title Song of Myself, uh, and no doubt Whitman encouraged the idea of seeing his poems and, uh, and his book as being a reflection of his literal self. But at the same time, it is sort of a... Uh, a limitation on what Henry James is able to see, assuming and taking Whitman at his word that uh, that this is autobiography somehow, that this is somehow just a direct, unfiltered version of Walt Whitman, which uh, it certainly is not. Um, he says, art requires above all things a suppression of oneself, a subordination of oneself to an idea. And I don't think that it is too much to say that Whitman did this. This is exactly what he did. He subordinated his self to an idea of what he believed he could be, or just to a pose, just to a voice that he took up as a poet. Very often that's just what poets or artists do. They don't intentionally seek out a 
philosophy or a manifesto or a voice or a style or anything like that. Um, if we're lucky, it comes upon us and we either uh, follow it or we don't. And if we do, we may have very little understanding of just where it came from or just what it means or when it will run out or how long it will go on for. But very often, uh, even something like Whitman, which appears loose and um, spontaneous, uh, is not that at all. Uh, Allen Ginsberg, who for some reason is considered to be a descendant of Whitman poetically, does seem to live this, this criticism of Henry James out. Uh, it is Allen Ginsberg. Allen Ginsberg is living the life that he is writing in his poems, and no matter how much editing he did do, uh, it still does feel uh, that he is basically publishing what he called first thought, best thought. And in the same way, you have someone like T.S. Eliot claiming uh, around 1918, 1919 or so, again, the same thing that Henry James is saying, uh, the whole idea of impersonality in poetry, uh, of smothering the personality to make something universal. But there is hardly any more autobiographical poet than T.S. Eliot, as he said later on, uh, his poem, The Wasteland, he said this in later life, was just uh, his own expression of a personal grouse against the universe. And it's nice that he uses the word personal. He knows that the impersonal uh, theory that he gave off as a young man was probably uh, BS. Um, and the autobiographical in Eliot is also just in uh, what he was reading. All the notes that he put to his poetry and all the notes that scholars since then have pinned to his poems as footnotes. Um, there's very little in Eliot that isn't autobiographical. But again, in, in the, as we know, uh, The Wasteland was originally titled He Do the Policeman in Different Voices, so that it isn't just Eliot, it's Eliot uh, filtered through a voice, filtered through many voices, whereas Whitman, it seems, had one voice, two voices, maybe three or four. Um, so I just thought that was interesting, finding Henry James saying that. Um, and it's also nice to think that uh, a critic like Harold Bloom could consider uh, Henry James and Walt Whitman very easily on the same stature, and probably Whitman a little bit higher. And that is the way things go. Um, to continue with Peter Zweig's biography of Walt Whitman, Walt Whitman, The Making of the Poet, we left off when Whitman was uh, had just turned 30 years old. And for what I'll read today, sort of uh, moves through his uh, journalism some more and his uh, friendships with other artists. It goes back to his feelings about opera and uh, a tiny bit after that. So let's get right into it. Here, 
is the baffling, often irritating fact of Whitman's temperament, that he was a hack and yet was also America's most original poet. Time and again in his journalism and in his attempts at fiction, and even in Leaves of Grass, especially the plodding programmatic poems he filled out his books with, Whitman sang to the lowest level of popular taste with a homey directness that is not without charm. While he was toying with low moral melodrama, Whitman was also experimenting in his notebooks with new conceptions of poetic style and form, unleashing a verbal mania that burst forth occasionally in his journalism and in a few published poems. His tuness was apparently integral and fertile. It fed his comradeship with stage drivers and ferry boatmen, who knew him not as a literatus who liked to lower himself, but as a vivid, eccentric man who was completely comfortable with them on their terms. It accounts for the ease Whitman would feel later with illiterate farm boys in the Civil War hospitals, writing firm, spare letters for them to their families. These letters that he wrote for the soldiers stand as small masterpieces of American vernacular, showing no glimmer of, quote, poetry or sensitivity, more than might be expected from a good-hearted man of the people. Never, he recalled later, did he bring a copy of Leaves of Grass to the hospitals. Thus, we come to see Whitman's anti-literary style, his supple grasp of the uses of the vernacular tone, as not simply a form of impersonation, a masterful lie which, in a merry flash, a sort of practical joke, stripped away the over-cultivated tone of American literature. Although Whitman's family never knew what to make of his literary ambitions, he was more one with them than they knew. He remained all his life the son of a poor carpenter and a semi-literate brother. He thought as they thought, never rose above them, any more than he rose above the dozens of working men whose names fill his notebooks. Much 19th century literature exists in a passionate and often awkward dialogue with the popular or low culture. Balzac and Dickens wrote baggy monsters of novels shaped to the needs of newspaper serialization and modeled on the lurching melodramas of such as Eugène Sue. Edgar Allan Poe's severe and elegant fantasies were grounded in the well-forgotten crudities of the Gothic novel, and romantics everywhere drew on folktales. Like Wordsworth, they sought to apply their deepest imagination to rendering simple people who, as Rousseau had taught a whole civilization, lived close to nature and possessed an unchanging truth of human experience. So that what I have called Whitman's tuness, his simultaneous personalities of adventurous wordmaster and unsophisticated man of the people, internalized this dialogue, this cultural dialogue that had been going on for some time, and made it the most visible signature of his literary achievement. And that passage especially goes to show 
that while his while Whitman's literal um, long foreground might be hard to find, his cultural long foreground is right there if you want to look for it. Um, here's a this is a, a nice passage on uh, Whitman and popular music and later on opera. Um, here we are. Uh, in one newspaper article, Whitman objected to the delirious acclaim that greeted the Swedish singer Jenny Lind on her visit to New York in 1850. Miss Lind's vocal technique was dazzling, he admitted, quote, performing the same feats with sound that leapers and India rubber men perform with their limbs, end quote. Such vocal gymnastics are, quote, curious to hear, end quote. Yet a more ordinary voice will often possess far more, quote, sweetness in the music, end quote. Five years earlier, in an article entitled Art, Singing, and Heart Singing for Edgar Allan Poe's Broadway Journal, Whitman had made a similar distinction. There, he had also preferred the heart songs of American family singers, like the Hutchinsons, to the agonized squallings of, agonized squallings of foreign art singers. After the revelation of grand opera, however, Whitman wrote more subtly, quote, Music, in the legitimate sense of that term, exists independently of technical music, as much as language exists independently of grammar, or perhaps I might say, just as poetry exists independently of rhyme, the science of music, with all its rules and conventionalisms, may at times be almost disgusting to the purest and highest appreciation of the surpassingly beautiful reality which those rules are the mere shadows of. And uh, this goes to what I have long thought, that we only go to the theories we only go to the rules, we only try to figure out what an artist has done after they've done it and after we've come down from the high of the experience of it. And, uh, well, we can just keep reading. Uh, Zweig goes on to say, art's highest aim, Whitman had come to know, is not simply to be artless and direct, a language of the heart, its, quote, surpassingly beautiful reality, end quote, is beyond technique, yet is somehow suggested by it, and bodied forth by it, as the voice, apart from any words, envelops the hearer and lifts him to an ocean-like heaven of pure sounds. Quote, ah, welcome that I know, not the mere language of the earthly words in which the melody is embodied, as all words are mean before the language of true music. The, this is, and that ends a quote Whitman wrote about music. And only a few years later, he would write, the words of my book, nothing, the drift of it, everything. And he says, for Whitman too, but more profoundly and more subtly than uh, the French symbolist poets, Poetry would aspire to the condition of music, not in a Poe-like chiming of exotic rhymes and assonances, 
but in a pattern of suggestive imagery, interweavings of theme, shifts in tone, suggested by the alternations of recitative and aria. And there's a great deal to be said for what Whitman is getting at here about the need for technique as well as the need for apparent artlessness and directness. The, what you might say, the appearance of both is necessary and you can't really deny either one its place in creating. You can't deny anything in creating something, I don't think. Um, the denial comes in the editing, I would say, but not in the moment of creation. Um, although Whitman admired the technical brilliance of the Dusseldorf painters, as he did Jenny Lynn's virtuosity, he believed there was a more profound realism which was truer to nature more true than the apparent realism of these painters that uh, Zweig is talking about. Whitman says, quote, Too many of our young fellows, among those who ought to know better, are carried away with the false principle of working up the details of a picture to the minutest specification. This is the business of the modelist, not the artist aim to produce that beautiful resemblance which will excite the motion that the real object might produce. The rest is the mere drippings, the shavings, and sawdust. Keep them out of sight, unless you would mar the perfect work." End quote. When Whitman wrote a few years later that his poems were to be, quote, indirect and, quote, subjective, instead of linear and narrative, and when he wrote that he was letting nature speak in his wayward stanzas, which refused to gel into objective scenes and stories, but spilled forward like waves of the ocean, a favorite image of Whitman's, he was translating into literary terms values he had defended in the articles that he wrote at this time, in the early 1850s, about his young Brooklyn friends and artists, Walter Libby and Jesse. Talbot. At the same time, I have to say now, um, Whitman was, it, it would appear, whether, whether in Poe, whether in the Romantics, uh, uh, Wordsworth, uh, the idea of what a long poem could be for Whitman was in the idea of a narrative, a story of objective scenes and a tale that spins itself out. It's worth saying, uh, with our distance from Whitman, after more than a century and a half since the first Leaves of Grass, uh, of not having poems uh, that are linear and with a narrative, it is worth pointing out that the linear and the narrative are still possible and do still work, and that um, they can be just as revolutionary as ditching the linear story and the narrative. I don't labor under the illusion that my opinions on that and the work and the poetry that I've continued to write is also a reaction to the kind of poetry that I see 
being written these days and and realizing how much more I admire poetry of a much older age that does rely on narrative. And I'm sure that somewhere in Whitman, if he allowed himself to say it, he may just not have put it down, he would have admitted the same thing, that, that his poetry, uh, if, it is, if it is an expression of America, if it is an expression of a voice that he has suddenly found speaking outside of his own body, this voice of this character, this person that is not him, but uh, is his version in words and on the page, I'm sure he would not have had a problem seeing that um, in his indirectness and in his subjectivity, he was also responding against the poetry that was popular in his day and which he thought was sort of uh, dried out and overused. Um, let's see here. So, in the spring of 1851, for some reason I thought this would be a good story or, or maybe just a small poem to write. Um, in the spring of 1851, uh, Whitman's artist friends invited him to lecture at the newly formed Brooklyn Art Union on Fulton Street. And uh, Zweig gives an excerpt and discusses uh, part of what Whitman had to say that day. Great art, he told them, had the power to humanize death and make it almost appealing. Quote, in the Temple of the Greeks, Whitman said, death and his brother's sleep were depicted as beautiful youths reposing in the arms of night. At other times, death was represented as a graceful form with calm but drooping eyes, his feet crossed and his arms leaning on an inverted torch. Such were the soothing and solemnly placed influences which true art identical with the perception of the beauty that there is in all the ordinations, as well as all the works of nature, cast over the last fearful thrill of those olden days. Was it not better so? Or is it better to have before us now the idea of our dissolution, typified by the spectral horror upon the pale horse, by a grinning skeleton or a moldering skull? And Zwei goes on to put it quite well. At the heart of Whitman's poetry would be this very soothing myth of death. Death as a husky-voiced old mother. Death as an ocean. Death as a night filled with amorphous shapes. Death as perpetual expansion. As metempsychosis based on the natural cycles of death, decay, and rebirth. Whitman's fascination with death would save his poetry from the one-dimensional optimism, which William James called healthy-mindedness, he has often been accused of. And as an aside, uh, listeners will remember that the first poem of Whitman's that I read here, uh, the excuse I gave, the justification I gave to finally read a poem of Whitman's, 
was when I realized that I read very little happy uh, and even uplifting poetry here. So even I sort of fell into that and very soon after was reminded of that Whitman is not just uh, exclamation points and run-on lines and, uh, and exuberance. He's also uh, great darkness, but he also finds comfort in that darkness, which is something to learn from as well. Uh, Zweig goes on to say, Whitman was haunted by death. His youthful stories are driven by a genuinely personal nightmare, clinging to Poe-like conventions. He collected articles about examples of longevity, longevity and dreamed of an ageless old age full of joy, joy, joy. Leaves of Grass was wedded to death and written under, quote, great pressure, while his father lay dying in another room of the house and published only days before his death. In his speech at the Art Union, Whitman described death as a beautiful boy enfolded with his brother, sleep, in the comforting arms of night. The image is classical, perhaps inspired by Francis Wright's A Few Days in Athens. It conveys an erotic wistfulness, and the figure with calm but drooping eyes might almost be a self-portrait. Elsewhere, Whitman describes his own, quote, singular eyes of an indistinct light blue, and with that sleepy look that comes when the lid rests halfway down over the pupil, end quote. Lounging on an inverted torch, the figure also resembles the, the singer in Song of Myself, who, quote, bends an arm on an impalpable certain rest, looks with its side-curved head, looks with its side-curved head, curious what will come next. Death exists in the speech as a curious self-mirroring wedded to an art and to the Greek vision of boys reclining in each other's arms. A friend of Whitman's, Abby Price, remembered a conversation Whitman had about death a few years later. For a few minutes, she said, his face wore an expression she had never seen before. He seemed rapt, absorbed. In describing it afterward, Abby Price said that he appeared like a man in a trance. This rapt fascination may be the source of Whitman's sweetly haunted lines in Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking and When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed and provides the compelling lyricism of one of Whitman's most puzzling poems, Scented Herbage of My Breast, in which the longing for comrades and the leaf-like growth of poetry and the vision of death, the very themes Whitman invoked in his Art Union speech, are woven together with peculiar intensity. And here is a, an excerpt from Scented Herbage of My Breast. Scented herbage of my breast, leaves from you I glean, I write, to be perused best afterwards. Tomb leaves, body leaves, growing up above me above death. O oh, slender leaves, O oh, blossoms of my blood, I permit you to tell in your own way of the heart that is under you. Oh, I do not know what you mean there underneath yourselves. You are not happiness. 
You are often more bitter than I can bear. You burn and sting me. Yet you are beautiful to me, you faint-tinged roots. You make me think of death. Death is beautiful from you. What indeed is finally beautiful except death and love? Oh, I think it is not for life I am chanting here, my chant of lovers. The concluding theme of Whitman's speech became the ground note of his poetry and his life. Quote, the perfect man is the perfect artist. Which, of course, goes against uh, uh, Yeats's line that uh, there's either perfection in the life or perfection in the art. Um, perhaps Yeats said it too, uh, made it too much of an exaggeration about it. Perhaps Whitman here knows that what he's saying is also an exaggeration that cannot be lived up to. But what this makes me think of here is that you have a poet who is known for his immense physicality, his immense worldliness, uh, his down-to-earthness, uh, the body, the ground, the appetites, uh, food, uh, work, all of these things. And it might seem surprising that such a person who finds so much sacredness, I don't think he would mind me saying, in the acts of everyday life, it might seem like a surprise that that same poet would also find death to be beautiful, death being the, the end of all of those physical things, the end of at least whoever is dying, their experience of those things. But then you have that image at the end, uh, all through, crossing, Brook, uh, uh, crossing Brooklyn Ferry, um, of Whitman acknowledging that people a hundred years hence will also cross the river, also look on the water, and feel the same as he did. It seems that only people, which we might say of the Victorians, uh, only people who are prudish about the lowest things, the quote lowest things, I don't believe that they're the lowest things, only people who are prudish about sex, the body, food, work, and who don't believe that these things can go into poetry, it seems that these are the people who at the same time would want to make some kind of spectral horror, some gothic horror out of death. And I wonder today with, uh, because we're certainly not Victorian when it comes to sex and the body, um, or uh, our views of, of making work uh, seem to be honorable as it is, working with the hands, working with the mind, whatever it is that we do. We are well past the point of believing that only certain things can be the subjects of poetry and art. At the same time, though, I do wonder if what we have today is not a comfort with the body, but just uh, just as much of a discomfort with the body as people did then, just on the other end. Their discomfort led them to not discuss sex. Ours leads us to discuss it constantly, but still not be any more comfortable with it than we were before. 
And that could also be mirror, mirrored in our own feelings towards death as being a, sort of a cosmetic show. Um, in any case, that's the, the fun of these, um, the fun of this experiment is that I had no idea that I was about to say that, and it all literally just came now uh, reading that. Let's see. I think this will be the last passage I will read tonight. This is a fairly long one, I believe. Um, two more. Okay. Um, and here, so after that uh, sort of epilogue to the, the previous chapters, he sort of uh, Zweig sort of sums up where Whitman is, and then he describes uh, Whitman beginning in uh, the spring of 1852. He is back living at home, and he is, uh, he is no longer a journalist. He had a bookstore and a sort of a, a sidewalk store, bookstore, that is also gone. And, um, and he just, and Zweig just describes Whitman's life at this time, working day to day. In 1852, Walt and his brothers rented a storefront on the corner of Cumberland Street and Atlantic Avenue and set themselves up as carpenter contractors. Um, I don't think I've mentioned this previously, but Whitman's father, who was never able to really succeed in the business, was in the business of building houses and always seemed to have uh, bad luck at the job. Um, set themselves up as carpenter contractors. Whitman was no misty-minded businessman. The receipts that we have were carefully itemized, payments noted to the penny and dated. His father had not been good at business, and Walt was trying to do better. He supervised the work and kept his accounts in order. He made a profit, too. In May 1855, Louisa Whitman paid 1000 $840 for the old Whitman house on Ryerson Street, a, a clear of mortgage. Most of the money probably came from Walt. At last, the Whitmans had a house of their own, and for a few brief years the family achieved a measure of stability before the difficult times that were coming. Whitman's career as a house builder and contractor lasted only a few years, Yet it may be a key to deeper changes occurring within him. His new work took him away from the world of letters, from the journalism and the shrill sentiments of a political outsider. In a way, it brought him home to the world of mechanics and laborers he had fled as a younger man, but was now rediscovering on his summer rambles around Long Island, and especially in his role as a family provider helping to fill his father's shoes. Whitman's life had come full circle, and as Antaeus drew his strength from the earth, he celebrated by reveling in the concreteness of the working world. We find him noting down the specific vocabulary of the trades, quote, pork packing, they wear oil skin overalls, 
the killer hammer, the hog hook, the gutting, end quote, for use in his poems, or enjoying the superb music of working men's voices. Quote, I often wander all day on Manhattan Island through streets towards the East River on purpose to have the pleasure of hearing the voices of the native-born and bred workmen and apprentices in the spar yards on piers, cockers in the ship scaffolds, workmen in iron, mechanics to or from their shops, drivers calling to their horses, and the like." End quote. Although, as a newspaper man and locofoco Democrat, Whitman had often written about the working classes, his sympathy had been abstract, a matter of democratic principles. His ear for street talk had been there, but in quotation marks, defining a distance Whitman had preferred, the distance of ambition, of a higher social horizon. That has gone now. Whitman was not only listening to the superb music of the streets, he was chiming in, striking up acquaintance with strangers. This was a recent development, Brother George Whitman remembered. And when Thoreau walked down Fulton Street with Whitman in 1856, he was impressed and a little piqued by Whitman's casual friendships with the tradesmen and workers. The man was the greatest Democrat he had ever met. Thoreau wrote to a friend. The poems in Whitman's first book bristle with the terminology of the shop. Here, for Whitman, was the new heroism. Here were the unnamed acts by which men lived. Melville celebrated the epic tools of whale fishing. Not spears and shields, but tripods, blubber spades, harpoons, and coiled ropes. This became Whitman's subject, too, as he catalogued the clanking, hammering, and smelting, the workshops, and the skills. And here's a nice excerpt uh, from Song of Myself. The anvil and tongs and hammer, the axe and wedge, the square and miter and jointer and smoothing plane, the plumb bob and trowel and level, the wall scaffold, and the work of walls and ceilings, or any masonry work the ship's compass, the sailor's tarpaulin, the stays and lanyards, and the ground tackle for anchoring and mooring, the sloop's tiller, the pilot's wheel and bell, the yacht or fish smack, the great gay pennanted three hundred foot steamboat under full headway, with her proud fat breasts and her delicate swift flashing paddles, the cylinder press, the hand press, the frisket and timpan, the compositor's stick and rule, the implements for daguerreotyping, the tools of the rigger or grappler or sailmaker or blockmaker, on and on and on. And Zwei goes on to say, the first epic of the working life was probably Robinson Crusoe in 1719, which can be read as a variant of utopian fiction an account of how the drudgery of house-building, weaving, farming, sewing, cooking can become a satisfying and morally luminous activity. The 19th century, too, was devoted to a dream of happy work, most spectacularly in the odd theories of the French utopian writer Charles Fourier, whose American disciple, Albert Brisbane, Whitman met and may have echoed in his poems. 
Happy work was a kind of beatitude, even for a grim prophet like Karl Marx, who imagined his future communists fishing, working, and playing in millennial contentment. Thomas Jefferson dreamed of a country of small farmers inhabiting a heaven of private property and farm work, America's version of the shepherds who, since Theocritus and Virgil, had piped delightful melodies under trees far from the imperfect world. Whitman's first great poem, then, Song of Myself, is a siren song of union, of merging. It is profoundly a pastoral poem, but it differs from the familiar romantic pastoral of Wordsworth or Shelley because its happy place is not a green meadow beside a brook, but the onrushing world of ordinary experience, the world of carpenters building houses, of tram drivers, of paving stones echoing the sounds of living men and women. For Whitman, democracy itself was a new sort of pastoral. Its music was not that of a lone piper, but something like a chorus of voices, a free-form opera, raveling half out of control, a barbaric yop indeed. What can we say of a poem that extends its pastoral embrace to every creature, trade, and place, leaving nothing out, resorting to the inclusive form of the random list to express its capacity for sympathy? Isn't that interesting? To think of Whitman's long lines not as sloppy or formless, but simply as expressions of sympathy. Such a work, Zweig goes on to say, can hardly be called a poem. It reflects the indiscriminate appetite, a mind that sees all the dreamed-of fulfillments of religion and literature in the unvarnished shaggy particulars of the everyday world. In retrospect, we see this as an expression of Whitman's Americanness. Jacksonian rhetoric had turned America into a romantic idea, a secular heaven in which social justice, the healing powers of nature, and the fellowship of men appeared to be changing the conditions of history. Yet only two writers, Whitman and Melville, at the fading end of this romantic American dream, managed to give it full original expression. Before these two, Everett Doinkink's, Doinkink's wistful complaint seemed all too justified. So many manifestos, so much excited theorizing. But where was the literary genius to make the dream live? Surely not those respectable half-giants, Washington Irving, William Cullen Bryant, or James Fenimore Cooper. Hawthorne and Emerson were closer, but even they were too decorous. Their very strength had an old-world sobriety, a constrained style that made them seem half-English. Only Melville and Whitman managed the feat of creating, beyond the rich biblical rhetoric of American politics, beyond the down-home coziness of American heart-singing and black-faced Jim Crow performing, only they managed a spacious American art that D.H. Lawrence would compare to the Greeks. Whitman did not find his Americanness. He created it all on his own in his rooms on Skillman and Ryerson Street while toting up invoices for building materials, paying bills, 
buying and selling quickly built frame houses. And that is a, an incredible sentence to read out loud. Also, the idea that Whitman and Melville were alive at the same time, but uh, don't appear to have met. And if they had, they may not have liked each other. They, might, they may not have had very much to say. Uh, and it says something about what we believe a poet or an artist is, that they, uh, that they may well be behind the counter right now, building or doing whatever it is we think that poets ought not to be doing. Um, the revelation that we end up relying on, whether us or our children or their children, end up relying on will almost always come from the unexpected place, and in many cases the supposedly uneducated place, the place that has not been educated in what the uh, current fashion believes that knowledge should be. And the very last uh, uh, sentence or two here. Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau, set out to live deliberately in his shack on Walden Pond and to write equally deliberately in his book. Ralph Waldo Emerson's essays raised his speaking voice to a level of compression, paradox, and wit that no conversationalist could hope for. He speaks for eternity and from eternity. Whereas the casual immediacy of Whitman's style goes further than any major writer of his century toward blurring the boundary between the life and the work. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.